Good morning, church. My name is Jonas. I'm one of the pastors here at Bethel Church. And today I have the privilege of sharing from God's word with you. If you don't have a Bible this morning, I'd love for you to, to have a Bible or to scan the code and prepare yourself to be in the Gospel of John. As I was preparing uh, for this message this morning, uh, for some reason I was reminded of an incident that happened when I was 11 years old. It was 1990. So for you math people that are trying to figure it out, that makes me 44, so let's get that out of the way. Uh, I was 11 years old, I was in Charlotte, North Carolina, and my dad uh, reminded me of this, some details I'll share with you in just a moment, but what I remember about that moment was hearing these words, Mr. Bogues, Mr. Bogues, do you have a moment? And I remembered um, this week that I have met an NBA star, and I felt pretty good about that. In fact, I haven't just met any NBA star, I met the shortest player to ever play in the NBA star story. And, and so as I was thinking about the disciples and some of the ways they get labeled, I was thinking, you know what? I met a guy with a label, shortest player in the NBA. And all I could think, I mean, I shared with Anthony and Josh, and I was like, hey guys, y'all should know, like I met the shortest player in the NBA. And then I learned this morning, I'm also the shortest pastor at Bethel Church. So he and I have something in common, reportedly. But as I called my dad this week, I said, Dad, remind me of that moment, because all I can remember is shortest player. That's the label that sticks. And he said, Jonas, there's so much more to this. He said, I remember the moment, I'll never forget it. I, I, Mr. Bogues, Mr. Bogues, would you be willing to come over here and visit with some of your younger fans? We had the Charlotte Hornets, the cool jackets that are coming back again. We had that stuff back in 1990 and we loved this Mr. Bogues guy. And all I remember was looking in the back of the van and there's this hero and my dad said, Jonas, what you don't remember is he was one of the friendliest NBA players in the world. Though he could have not had time for any of us, he paused and he took time for us and he was present with us. And it was this beautiful moment. Oh son, it's so much more than shortest player in the NBA. But for whatever reason, sometimes those labels stick, don't they? I was visiting with another friend this morning and she introduced me as one of the pastors at Bethel. And I didn't think anything of it, but she reminded me, no, that's what you call yourself. Like on Sunday mornings, like we have these little labels, right? Like, oh, he's, the short, he's, he's one of those guys. And, 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 then, and then another friend charitably reminded me, like you used to be the youngest pastor. You know, so, so some of these labels, they come and go and, and that's okay, that's life. You know, all of us have been labeled or carry a reputation with us. And a lot of times those things are outside of our control. We're living our lives, something happens, or we're in the wrong place at the right time, or the right place at the wrong time, whatever it is, and the label sticks, okay? And some of those labels aren't so good, some of them are great. And then some of us, we've done things in our lives that contribute to the labels that stick to us, and we wish with all of our might that that label wasn't our label. We look back to a time of ignorance or foolishness, something that we said or did, and we carry that reputation with us. And no matter how hard we try, no matter how fast we run, we just can't seem to get beyond that label. And then the more I thought about it, the more I thought, and you know, there's some of us in this room that much to our embarrassment and shame, we're the people who created those labels. Uh, I, I look back at my life and I think about some of the regrets I have and some of the foolishness and times of ignorance and, and moments of cruelty and lacking generosity, how I, I think I actually contributed to some of those labels. And like those new labels they got at the thrift store, if you haven't seen them yet, some of those labels don't come off real easy. <laughs> you just have to really work on them to get rid of them. And, and sometimes it takes an outside force to, to, to even get those labels off and how much more the labels we carry with us in our lives. 
As I think about the years, I think how wonderful it is that some of those labels have faded, especially the negative ones. But I also think about how God wants to speak into the moments of our lives and he wants to remind us that we're so much more than the label. Just like that phone call I had with my dad, I want you to have a phone call with your heavenly father to remind you that there's so much more than the label that has stuck to you or the label that maybe you gifted to someone else. And that in Christ, you can have a new identity. Friends, God wants to speak to us today. And I invite you, if you have that Bible that's been handed to you, that you would open it to page 923. We're gonna look at the book of John, but I wanna set us up for that. John is the fourth book in the New Testament. It's the last of the gospels to be written. And we call it the book of John profoundly because it was written by John. He was an older man. Uh, he, he was living on an island, not because he wanted to, but because he was forced to. He was forced into uh, a place of, honestly, a place of insignificance and, and isolation. And God used this elderly disciple to write a church that urged his readers to actively follow Jesus. In the Gospel of John, we learn about the person, the character, the nature, the work of Jesus. And his purpose statement at the end of the book is just so crystal clear. You'll see that a little bit later, that more than anything else, John wants you to believe that the, this good news that Jesus came to save sinners. Now that word belief is a little bit tricky in the New Testament. And if you've heard me preach before, forgive me for the repetition, but I find it helpful. You see, you could believe with me that there is a stool here and the facts all line up that in fact, there, there is a stool. It appears to be black in nature and, and approximately 24 inches tall or so. And we could all agree, we could all assent to that knowledge. We could say, yes, brother Jonas, shortest pastor. That is a stool. You might even agree that it's a little tall for me, but we could all agree that, that my faith in this stool is not a realized uh, faith until I rest on the stool. When I've rested on the stool, I've agreed not that it's just a place for me to sit, but, but that I trust this stool to hold me up. And I'm sure there's other illustrations. And again, forgive me for the repetition if you've heard it, but I think it's very important because for so many people, when you hear believe or faith, you have the world's understanding and it makes sense, friends. But what the speakers in the New Testament are trying to tell you is this faith is active. It's not just that there's a stool, but there's a stool that we invite you to rest in. And his name is Jesus. Now in the gospel of John, more than a hundred times the word believe is used. And it's almost never in its noun form. It's almost always in its verbal form. And it's often in an imperative or a commanding voice. Now I love the gospel of John. And, and if you've never read the Bible or you've out of practice of reading the Bible, I wanna urge you this week to take up the Gospel of John and read it again. There's this active sense in what he's telling us. There's movement and beauty. In fact, I think the Gospel of John is just, even standing alone is a tremendous piece of literature. Like if you're an English teacher, you ought to think about assigning the Gospel of John as literature. It's amazing what he does in this piece. I was doing some research and in my own experience, I, I think honestly, if you were to sit down this week and you were to say, I'm gonna read the Gospel of John, all 21 chapters, it'd probably on average take you just under two hours. So about the same time as watching one of those long movies, you could read the Gospel of John. 
And if you were to read the Gospel of John and you were to slow down and, and notice some of the movements that are happening, you'd notice there's a number of I am statements. You, you'd see an interplay of light and dark. You'd see this growing sense that Jesus is making a claim that he's not just a man, but he is God. In fact, he labels himself most often in the book of John as the son of man. And for the student of scriptures, you'll recognize this is a reference from the book of Daniel of a coming divine ruler who will be given authority and a kingdom by God. And this is how Jesus labels himself. When he was talking to his disciples, he would say, the son of man, me. And the reader was to understand that he was referencing back to the one that was promised years and centuries ago. Now, there's also some humorous things you might see if you read slowly through the book of John, and, and I would encourage you to do that. In fact, if you were reading around the Easter story, maybe you remember this. It's one of my favorite scenes. It's at the tomb in John chapter 20. The disciples have learned that the tomb is empty, and John, who, uh, who's writing the text, says, so Peter and the other guy started running for the tomb, and the other guy beat Peter the guy who wrote the gospel. He wanted you to know he can outrun Peter in a foot race. Isn't that awesome? Like, you know, we get all kind of serious and stuffy about the Bible sometimes, but there's some really fun stuff if you're reading for it. Like this guy's faster than Peter. And he, can you imagine Peter? Like, seriously, you put that in there? <laughs> really? And then you think about just some of the humanity in this book. I love John's self-label. He, he labels himself the one who Jesus loved. I mean, how awesome is that? You're writing a book, you get to say that. And it's a divinely inspired, so I believe him. And we know that Jesus loved John. He was very special to him. Matthew became the tax collector. But there's another man I wanna talk about today who's picked up a label, and I, I want you to help me. This is audience response time. Um, Anthony is excluded because of an experience we shared this week. Um, when you think of the, the disciple Thomas, what comes to mind? What did you say? Doubting Thomas. Thank you. That was so much easier than the other conversation I had this week because I learned that Anthony wrote a term paper on this and he knows that there's so much more to the story of Thomas. He, he could preach this message. It was so fun, brother. I loved that. So doubting Thomas, right? This is a label that is stuck to him through the centuries. It's fascinating because it caused me to want to know more about this guy. Who is this doubter and, and what do we know about him? I've learned that he shows up in only seven places in the New Testament. His name is only mentioned 11 times. For, and in four of those seven places, um, he's just listed with the other disciples. Like he doesn't even make a splash. He's just like, oh, and Thomas was there too. Now it was significant that Thomas was there. He was one of the top 12. But if we were going based on just how many times was his name used, we might think that Thomas kind of plays a, a smaller role than he really does. Because in the gospel of John, Thomas shows up in three places that really help us understand how we can lean in to making Jesus the definer of our identity. And I wanna show you those. Let's begin with scene one in John chapter 11, page 923. John chapter 11, beginning in verse eight. 
But Rabbi, the disciples said, a short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you, and yet you want to go back? And Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by this world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble or they have no light. And after he had said this, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. Verse 12, his disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get better. Can you just imagine those disciples? One of my preacher friends said, it's, it's like the grandma's advice, like, hey, you feel sick, go take a nap. And when you take a nap, you feel better. And they're just like following grandma's advice, right? Well, Jesus, if he's asleep, he'll wake up. He'll be better. But Jesus is speaking a little bit cryptic. They pick up on it. Verse 13, it says, Jesus was speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So again, guys, if you're writing this book, I think I'd lead some of those parts out. John doesn't. His disciples, uh, so then he told them plainly, verse 14, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. And then Thomas, who is also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, well, let's also go that we may die with him. I never put this together, that this is the same Thomas that we've always known as doubting Thomas until I, until I started to really dig in. There is a tremendous moment of courage on display here in verse 16. Do you see it? He says, well, then let's go. Like, like if Lazarus died, because here's the setup, the Jews had already said, if you're with Jesus, we're against you. Now Lazarus is dead, so logically it made sense, then, then we're to die. So, so brothers and sisters, let's go. And there's this tremendous moment there of, of just a, a sense of eagerness in Thomas and a, a simplicity there, a beauty there. Um, boy, next time you think of doubting Thomas, what I hope I'm doing for you is peeling back the label a little bit, maybe even putting a question mark there. He's not always doubting Thomas. <laughs> At least one time he was a courageous Thomas. And he's the kind of guy we would like to be like. And, and there's another point too here that, that's fascinating. His identity is a little bit hijacked. Did you see there in the text where it says his name is Thomas, which is also known as Didymus? His whole life, he's been known as the twin. One of my preacher friends was preaching about this and he said, guys, it's like, you, you know, they didn't have sonograms like we have today. They didn't know how many were coming. <laughs> and after the first one's raised up and like, yay, baby. Wait, there's another one. And they called him twin all his whole life. So his, you know, his labels are a little challenging there. Thomas the twin, identified by his brother. Well, let's look at the second scene I want you to see here. And that's just a couple pages later on John chapter 14, verses 1 through 6. That's on page 927 if you're following along in that Bible. And as we prepare to listen to this, let me just remind you that Lazarus has been raised from the dead. The disciples have been near to this Jesus guy who said things like, I am the good shepherd, I am the gate, I am the resurrection and life. John chapter 12, lots of people are believing in this Jesus because of Lazarus being resurrected from the dead. And Jesus is teaching them some hard things like, hey guys, uh, before long, the son of man is gonna be lifted up. And they're like, okay, whatever that means. John chapter 13, you see this theme. Again, if you're reading in the gospel of John, watch for language like the hour has not come, the hour has come. You see a picking up of pace in John 13. 
The hour has come. He washes their feet. It's confusing. And as we go into John 14, we're, we're, we're pulling back, uh, we're, I guess, from where you are. So John 13 is coming. It's still dark. And John wants you to know that. This is in the dark. So that you will remember just how dark it is and that it's about to get darker. John 14. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and I will take you to be with me that you may also be where I am. You know the place to where I'm going. Now, now guys, we know the rest of the story. <laughs> but, but listen to what Thomas says. Uh, Lord, we don't know where you're going. So how will we know the way? I mean, put yourself in his shoes. Jesus is talking about this beautiful house. He's talking about his heavenly father that's, that's got this amazing um, place for you to live. And Jesus is going to go prepare a place. And, and you guys, if you know me, you know where I'm going. And, and, and Thomas gets to him first. Uh, we're not so sure. Verse 6, he says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him, and you have seen him. And then it goes on, because Philip is confused. And I labeled this a moment of confusion, because, because they're trying to understand what's going on. When faced with danger, Thomas was not quick to run away. When faced with confusion, he didn't become selfish or cowardly, but, but he was a little bit gloomy. <laughs> like, Jesus, this sounds really good, but it's dark outside and things are getting worse. How's that going to work? And then Jesus made this incredible claim. John chapter 14, verse 6. If you hear nothing else, hear this. When Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me, he is providing a a clear path to being made right with God the Father. We live in a world and in a time where everybody wants to L-Y-T, live your truth. <laughs> Jesus walks in and says, I don't even think he'd say that's cute. <laughs> I think he'd say, I'm the way, the, tr the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Friends, if you're following Jesus, you're following an exclusive claim to salvation by faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone. There is no other name by which people may be saved, and it is crystal clear here. Well, some of us can relate to Thomas if we're being honest. We hear this incredible claim, and we go, Lord, I don't, I don't know. I got a little bit of faith. I appreciated one commentator who said a genuine disciple may know little to begin with. And certainly that was the case with the apostles themselves, but, but a genuine disciple won't be satisfied to live in the dark. He will desire to be enlightened in the knowledge of Christ. And will we'll pray like these prayers of these disciples and say, Jesus, show us the Father. And Jesus, like he did in John chapter 14 for us, says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Friends, these disciples had been with him for years, but they had found no rest and satisfaction in Jesus, and they still had a craving for something beyond him. And they didn't even realize it was all there all along. 
but they will. Here's this exclusive claim, no other way to be saved except through Jesus. Unless you doubt why the Jews wanted to murder Jesus, as you read through the Gospel of John, you will read things like in John chapter 4 with a Samaritan woman who says, I'm looking for the one who comes, and, and John, or Jesus says, I'm that one. Man, was that disturbing to the Jewish mind. Jesus was not what they were expecting. In John chapter 6, after feeding the 5,000, the disciples were on the boat, the water's stormy, and Jesus walks out on the water, and they're terrified, and Jesus says these words in John, I am. It is I. He is making the claim that he is Yahweh God, the Hebrew God. He and Jesus are one. In John chapter 8, in an argument with Jewish leaders who didn't want to believe and they were arguing with him about Abraham, Jesus pops off and says, before Abraham was, I am. And they wanted to murder him because they knew what he meant. When the guards came to arrest Jesus with Judas at their side, they said, who are you? And he said, I am he. And they all fell down. It's a fascinating scene in the book of John. Terrifying at the holiness and the power of Jesus. He is God. And they're standing right next to him and they were confused. Brothers and sisters, when you are near to God in this place and you feel confused, let me just acknowledge you're not alone. But let me also invite you to lean into that. Don't let confusion be the place where you stay. Believe in Jesus and get active about pursuing him. Don't just talk about Jesus and resting in Jesus, but rest in Jesus and then get to work believing in its verbal sense. In a recent conversation, one of my friends kept saying, God's love language is obedience. I think he said it like four or five times. I guess I needed to hear it. You know, people talk about the love languages, the five love languages, how do you receive love, blah, blah, blah. Man, God's love language is obedience. He wants you to believe and to pursue him. I wanna encourage you, if you're on the outside looking in, these classes, these groups we offer are for you. It's one of the ways you can lean into your faith. If, if you're curious and you're doubting or you're concerned, there are people who have walked this road before you who would love to disciple you in the truth. I'm so encouraged when I see Reed Schrader, a senior in high school downstairs teaching an apologetics class. I'm like, yes. When I see you know, others, men's groups that are happening, women's groups, all these things, like, yes, we're actively believing this stuff. In the New Testament, this idea of faith and belief, they're synonyms and as a response to what God has done. John Calvin wrote helpfully 500 years ago that faith is a firm and sure knowledge of the divine favor towards us, founded on the truth of a free promise in Christ and revealed to our minds and sealed on our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Friends, faith is a gift. And faith is founded on the truth that our God is benevolent and kind towards you. And he was certainly kind towards these men. If you look at his response to them, he was so gentle towards them. Though they were confused, though they doubted, Jesus moved towards them. Let's look at scene three, John chapter 20, page 933 if you're following along here. We're gonna look at verses 24. And, and here's the setup. They've already had the foot race. Peter lost. Jesus has already appeared to the disciples when they were regathered. Verse 24, Thomas, 
also known as Didymus, there's that label again, one of the 12 was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I'm not going to believe. Can you, can you pause there for just a moment and think about that? Like, like I've tried to give thought to and words to some of those thoughts, like what would that have been like? Judas is gone. The tomb is empty. The other 10 guys say they've seen this ghost-like figure who is Jesus, who comes through a locked door and like eats with them, does them, but you're on the outside looking in because you didn't get the message to come to dinner that night. Some commentators wonder if Thomas had kind of gotten a little gloomy and sat out. I don't, I don't think we'll know, and I'm not even sure it matters, but, but let me acknowledge for you that, that that is a reality for some of us. Sometimes we're on the outside looking in because we're self-selecting out. We get a little gloomy or, or maybe we're a little melancholy. And, and he says, um, I, I'm gonna have to see this. He wanted plausible evidence. I, I don't think, I don't get the sense from this text that Thomas didn't want to believe. In fact, I get the strong sense that he wanted to believe. But even us who've walked with Jesus have moments in our lives where we really want to believe, but in our journey with God, we wonder like the psalmist in Psalm 77 who prays, God, have you forgotten me? We pray like the psalmist David in Psalm 46, why are you cast down my soul? Why are you so disturbed in me? Hope in God. I kind of wonder if, if Thomas wasn't on the side there praying a psalm like Psalm 116, return to your rest, my soul, for the Lord has been good to you. You see, I think if we pause, we can see ourselves in these stories and we can see the, the, the true follower of Jesus having experiences like this. But a week later, Thomas was with them Verse 26, though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and he said, peace be with you. I think if Jesus showed up like that, that's probably the first thing he always needed to say. <laughs> peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Stop doubting and believe. Do you ever wonder if he winked at Thomas? But do you ever wonder, like Jesus loved Thomas and he shows up eight days later and, and you almost wonder like, was this for Thomas? Like, hey Thomas, remember what you said back there when you didn't think I was listening? Why don't, why don't you touch right here? Why don't you feel right here? And the fascinating thing about that experience is you don't get the sense like he's in some deep intellectual discussion you get the sense like he really wants to believe this truth. Friends, Thomas wanted to believe the truth of Jesus, but there's another type of person that exists in our world and they exist, he, those people existed in the time of Jesus and these are people who are looking for every reason not to believe in Jesus. And Jesus had a very different response to them. He labeled those people as wicked and adulterous. He said, if you're just looking for an excuse to not believe in Jesus, 
you're on the wrong path. But if you are looking for a reason to believe, boy, is there a lot. The human heart is incredibly vulnerable to the influence of culture and family, friends and neighbors. And even after conversion, it remains susceptible to those same powers. It's no wonder that wisdom repeatedly implores its readers to incline their hearts and to keep their heart with all vigilance. You see, we have to tend to our hearts and be like Thomas and want to believe, even in our unbelief. Chapter 20, verse 28. Here we see a historic confession. Look at the buildup. I'll I'll set you back a little bit. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with him and though the doors were locked, Jesus came, he stood among them and he said, peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, come put your fingers over here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. The man who was once a great doubter has now become one of the fullest and most firms of believers. Pastor Richard Baxter of the Puritan era era said, nothing is so firmly believed as that which hath once been doubted. Thomas would go on to give his life in service to Jesus. Several different places claim him to this day there are places in the world like St. Thomas of India where they, they try to, to trace their history back to Thomas because they want to be like him. They want you to know that they're like Thomas, not doubting Thomas, but confessing Thomas. Courageous Thomas. Friends, Thomas recognized that the man who was once dead is now alive. The one whom he had walked with, his beloved master, is the same person that he's enjoying beloved fellowship post-crucifixion. This resurrected man is not just man, but he is God. And this man, Jesus, said, blessed are you who believe, even when you haven't seen. Do do you realize when you read a text like this, that you are the expression of that text? We are the expression of that text. Blessed are we who have heard the good news of Jesus and we believe. We stand on more than 2,000 years of history of repeating this good news that God has come. We don't have to, to, to spend all of our gears trying to prove ourselves right, though it's good when we have opportunity to preach the good news of Jesus. It's that message that changes people. It's that message that brings us together. There's some of us in this room, we would never be together except for Jesus. And because of Jesus, we gotta be together. (laughs) And it's awesome. Last week we celebrated Easter. We gathered for worship. We celebrated new life reflected in baptism. I didn't realize it was 34. Thank you, that was amazing. But leading up to Sunday, when we gathered on Friday, we specifically made time to remember Jesus' death. And in our time of communion, we celebrated the goodness of God in the broken body of Jesus, in the poured out blood of Jesus. And friends, that should remind us that our sin is a terrible offense to a holy God. The cross 
stands as witness. That is that Jesus that was lifted up that many would be saved. It's a reminder that all of us are under the penalty of sin apart from the work of Jesus. But God, rich in mercy, sent his son to rescue and to save sinners in need of a savior. On Thursday, Tracy here in our office sent around the testimonies that were written of those being baptized. And, and I will be honest with you, I did not expect the overwhelm of emotions that I felt as I read those stories. Thank you to all who contributed. And if you haven't read them, scan the code, go read these stories. Be encouraged, brothers and sisters, because God is still in the business of rescuing sinners and transforming lives into people who love him and love others and serve the world. He is at work. I couldn't help but text my wife. Greta, I don't know if you're supposed to see this yet, but you gotta see this. I, I was like bouncing in my chair. I had to go tell somebody that some of my friends are walking with Jesus now, that there are kids who are making decisions for Jesus now, that there are older people who are making decisions for Jesus now, that God is at work. I had to tell somebody. Well, brothers and sisters, I wanna remind you that no matter what label you came in here today with, God wants to give you a new label. He wants to remind you of the label that's above every label, that beloved child of God, the one who is sent by the Lord Jesus to tell the good news. Because brothers and sisters, you are blessed to have believed even though you didn't get to touch or to see. And I wanna invite you wherever you are on this journey to press in and to join with doubting Thomas, question mark, period, exclamation point, all the things. Yes, he had a moment of doubt, but God used that moment of doubt to turn it into an exclamation point. My Lord and my God, this Jesus. Let's press in this week and share that good news with somebody else. Join me as I pray. Father in heaven, thank you that we can look to your word. Thank you for not holding back as you divinely inspired this book and, and you kept the humanity in full display. Lord, thank you for those insights we see as we read that, that these were mere humans like us and they struggled. But God, they didn't struggle alone and their identities were forever changed when they met you. Father, would you use these moments that we've shared? Lord, some of us are, if we're being honest, we're confused. We're struggling, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the Lord I, Lord I love. Yeah. God, for others, we're bouncing in our seats. We gotta tell somebody. Lord, stir within us a reminder of just how much you've done and then put us to work this week. God, help us to not believe that faith is just a noun, but it's a verb. Help us to believe. And in believing to share this good news with someone else this week, in Jesus' name, amen.